Luke 12, 49 through 53. I came to cast fire on earth, and would that already be kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give you peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother against mother-in-law, and daughter against daughter-in-law, and mother against mother-in-law. It's another fun passage of scripture, right? Um, if you don't know already, we're working our way through the hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, the idea is that Jesus said some things uh, that are hard for us to receive. He said some things that are difficult for the natural ear to hear. They're the kind of things that, 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 that tend to confront us, that force us to ask, like, like man, do I really want to follow this Jesus? Like in his day, these sayings, these hard sayings that we've been going through were often what separated his followers from his foes. They separated those who loved him and those who hated him. The more he sort of attracted some, the more he repelled others. While some gathered around him because of these sayings, others began to plot his murder. By the way, that's how you know that you're looking at the real Jesus in the scriptures. Because you grow to either love him or hate him. You can't be neutral. You can't be neutral when it comes to the hard sayings of Jesus. That's why I think it's wrong for people to think that, uh, you know, Jesus was a nice guy, but he's kind of boring. Maybe that's some of us in this room. Uh, this afternoon, maybe that's some of you who are tuning in online. Uh, you, you know, you like some things about Jesus, but overall you think he's, he, he's, he's boring. Uh, and that, if that's the sort of uh, feeling or posture you have towards him, like, that just really says that you haven't really gotten to know him. And so we're looking at some of these hard sayings that he has said. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and and start working through our text. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for our our church family and uh, just the opportunity that we have to gather publicly in this place, to be with one another, to sing songs to our Lord Jesus, uh, to be in fellowship with one another, and to receive your word. God, as we've learned just time and again throughout this series, that when we are confronted with some of your hard saints, we find ourselves challenged. And so, Lord, would you just till the soil of our heart that we might humbly receive the seed of your word, receive it, have it grow, that we might bear fruit for the glory of your name, and for the good of others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the hard saying that we're looking at is coming to us from Luke chapter 12. Uh, And this one's like a real head scratcher. He says right there in verse 49, I came to cast fire on earth. 
and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And here's the head scratcher. He says, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now that's unsettling, right? To hear Jesus, the Savior, the one that we know as the Prince of Peace, say, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. It's like, don't we sing songs about peace on earth and mercy mild, right? Like, isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? And we know that he is. And so what is it that he's talking about in this instance? What Jesus is talking about is not so much like a violent division, but a relational division. How following Jesus will somehow separate us from others around us. We're going to dig more into how we see that from this text, but I want you to just look for a minute how, the, how this uh, continues in verse 52. He says, From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Man, Jesus is just saying, look, this, this sort of division, this relational division is going to be a mark of his ministry, a mark of the impact that he's going to leave on the world. It might even divide families, and some of us have experienced that. Some of us in this room right now, some of us tuning in online have experienced this sort of division in our families that Jesus causes. And why is that? It's because as we are devoted to Jesus and following him in just the everyday stuff of life, as we say here, some others who are opposed to Jesus and our lifestyle uh, that seeks to honor him, uh, they'll, they'll be repelled by that. And that doesn't mean that we get to be rude. It doesn't mean that we get to be mean to people and like look down on them because we're different than them because somehow we get it and they don't. If you remember our sermon from, from last week, we talked about how we shouldn't judge. Take out the plank in your own eye before you remove the speck from your brothers. And so it doesn't give us license to be rude or oppressive to others. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that it's inevitable that if you are seeking to follow Jesus with your whole life, you are going to experience some measure of separation some measure of division, some measure of conflict in your life just by the sheer virtue of the fact that you've chosen to follow Jesus. And so let's unpack this idea from this text. The first thing I want you to, to, to um, see just by way of preface is that not all worldviews cause, or, or rather that all worldviews cause division, not just Christianity. So really, all worldviews cause division, not just Christianity. What do I mean by that? You see, some people read passages like this in Luke 12, and they say things like, yep, 
I've always known that Christians are out there causing division, always out there trying to separate themselves from other. Those people, those Christians are always causing trouble. And this assumption, this running assumption they have is that Jesus' message and his followers, they are intolerant. They are exclusionary. While most other worldviews are actually more um, uh, more other worldviews are more tolerant and more inclusive. But if you press in far enough with really every other worldview, what you'll find is that deep down, all worldviews, and a worldview is basically just a view that you have on what the world is, how it works, how we determine what is good, what is true, what is beautiful in the world around us. What you find is that if you go deep down far enough, really all worldviews are in some sense exclusive. Both people of faith and secularists, people who deny faith, make exclusive claims. And so like on the one hand, you have people of all kinds of faith making exclusive claims that would exclude Christianity, right? Like Buddhists teach that there is no personal God. There's no personal God that can be personally known. There is just sort of this uh, uh, ambiguous divine force that you just sort of want to be in tune with. You want to get in like the good karma stream. They would say that Jesus was maybe like this enlightened master uh, of sorts, but he's not the eternal son of God. This whole idea that God is personal, that God has a mind of his own, that he wants to be personally known is completely foreign and, and just wrong to them. Another world religion, Hinduism, they, they, is more like a complex network of religions. Jesus could be considered just one of many gods. They believe there's no such thing as personal salvation through him. One of the other fastest growing religions in the world, Islam, they teach that you should love and obey God in full submission to him. They have a big view of uh, what they consider God's transcendence, but they have no concept of his, what we would call his imminence. They would say, God, Allah is big, he's worthy of worship, but he is not near in a relational way. They would say that salvation is entirely up to you. And how you rest yourself, and, and, and this idea of how you, we as Christians would rest our salvation on God's son who was the God-man, God who's come down to us. That whole idea is just anathema to them. It's ludicrous. Mormons talk about Jesus and can sound like Christians oftentimes by the language that they use, but they would deny that Jesus' birth is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. They believe that Jesus is like the spirit child of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, and he didn't become a God until he progressed into the spirit world. And you see, all these other, like, well-known uh, uh, religions growing in Western culture. Those were the ones I sort of focused on. 
They all make exclusive claims saying, look, here's the right view of things and here's the wrong view of things. They even have their own view of how they view the Christian belief of who Jesus is and what he's done to be wrong. Now, even on the other side of things, you have secularists who would say that they deny faith altogether. They would say, like, look, we don't have any claim on faith belief. They would say no one can have a claim to ultimate truth and ultimate justice. And they would say that any worldview that claims that they know what is true and right is ultimately wrong. Which if you're paying attention closely enough, that whole statement is just super ironic, right? They say, you cannot have a claim to ultimate truth and ultimate justice. And by the way, I'm absolutely right about that. Or you'll have someone, you'll have some who appear to have like a more humble approach will say, hey, you know, maybe all these views, all these different faith views, and all these different secularist views, every single one of them might be true in their, in their own sort of mysterious, mystical way. The problem with that is once you've said that, you've told all these worldviews that they're right when they outright contradict one another. And so you're saying, hey, look, you each have a workable system you think you have the whole picture, but you guys just have each part, different parts of the same picture. And so the person who says that, it's like, how, how could they even know that? Unless apparently they're the only one who sees it, the whole picture. Right? So even that position is in some sense an exclusionary position. I've used this metaphor here uh, before. It's, it's not mine. I read it in a book by uh, Leslie Newbigin, and I think he heard it when he was on like a mission trip in India. Um, but people have said it's helpful, so I'll, I'll repeat it. But it's, it's like this, uh, um, he, he talks about how in um, relativistic uh, uh, sort of progressing world religions, like people will often talk about um, how uh, the way that we should look at different world religions is that uh, if you got three blind men, you walk them into this big room where there's a single elephant in the room, and you tell these three blind men to walk in and figure out what's in the room. And, and this one guy comes up and he grabs the trunk and he says, oh, this is, this is a snake. This is for sure a snake. And then this other guy grabs like the leg and he says, oh, you know, I think this is a tree trunk. That's what's in this room. There's a tree here. And the other guy is kind of brushing up against the tail in the back. And he's like, oh, no, this is, uh, this is, a, this is a, a, like a vine of some sort or a plant, another plant of some sort. And the moral of the story is that every single person thinks that he knows what's in the room. But they're all wrong because they're only seeing a part of it. Um, and then Leslie Newbingham says how he, it just dawned on him one time that, that the problem with that metaphor is that the narrator is presuming that he knows the whole picture. And so the narrator is saying, look, I'm the only one who knows what's right and wrong in here, and everybody else is wrong, Right? And then Newbigin just, uh, he, he continues and he says, but what if, what if the elephant could speak? 
And what if the elephant just came out and said, no, you idiots, I'm an elephant, right? Like this elephant would be like the, 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 the only person or the only being rather um, who could accurately describe who he truly is. And look, when Jesus came, he claimed, he claimed to be the full and complete revelation of the one true and living God. He came and, and confessed, professed that he is the one true and living God in the flesh. And so a question that we all have to wrestle with is, is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus who he says he is? And then recognizing that all of our division comes from how you judge the correct answer to that question. You see, a culture says, look, I think I should get to make the rules. I pick and choose the parts of Jesus that I like. I like the peace and love hippie Jesus. I love the homeboy Jesus. I love the get me out of hell for free Jesus. But I'm going to exclude all the stuff that he claimed about being Lord over my life. But no, the Christian opens up the word of God and says, no, he is God. He's a living God. And he's Lord over all, and so he makes the rules. Culture says things like, you know, the Christian views on sex and morality are too narrow. But the Christian says, no, we just believe that Jesus is Lord. And so he gets to make the rules on things, including sex and morality, whether they fare well with me or not. You see, every single worldview has its way of determining how do we know what is right and how do we know what is wrong. And every worldview then excludes all other, way of all other ways of determining what is right and wrong. And so it's a widely held myth to say that only Christianity is unusually exclusive. Every worldview is. Romans 1 says the big question underneath all of this is, is God in charge or not? Is he real? Is he in charge or are we in charge? And then if he is, then his claims to lordship must be true and valid. It's not exclusionary. It's not impressive or oppressive. It's just true if God is real and if he is in charge. And if he isn't real, then his claims to lordship in the scripture have no claim on our lives. So that's the first thing, just by way of preface, I want us to sort of reckon with, is that Christianity is not unusually exclusive. Number two, what makes Jesus divisive is specifically his claim to total lordship over our lives. That's what makes him divisive, all right? It's not because he's mean. It's not because he likes to pick a fight. It's not because he's about us versus them. It's not because he's about this political party versus that political party. What makes Jesus divisive is his claim to total lordship over our lives. You see, if you follow Jesus, if you've truly gotten to know him, to worship him, 
to love him and to follow him. And that means you see him as ultimate truth. You see him as all satisfying goodness. You see him as the true source of all beauty. And that will set you apart from all others who seek truth, goodness, and beauty anywhere other than him. All right? And, it, and it's not necessarily an antagonistic thing. It's just, it's just where the chips fall. Like you might have a relativist that says, hey, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. But, but Jesus says, no, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you follow Jesus, you can't be a relativist. You might have the hedonist that says, look, the way that you know what's good is if it feels good. The scriptures say that, no, in Christ, I have died to my former self, and I've risen to walk in newness of life. And so if you're following the Jesus of the scriptures, then you can't be a hedonist. You have culture telling you that beauty is found in this polished veneer. But Jesus says, no, that's like a whitewashed tomb. True beauty is found in bearing the fruits of the Spirit. You see, Jesus claimed to total lordship over our lives. And if we find ourselves walking underneath and in step with that lordship, will naturally separate us from others. Now the gospel, uh, or let's look back at our text here. Jesus gives one practical example of how that looks in Luke 12. He says again, from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The Gospel of Matthew retells this same account, but then adds these words in Matthew 10, verse 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, those are hard words, right? Let's just be real. Those are hard words. Those are hard words to swallow. It's staggering because Jesus here is putting himself At the center of our faith, he is claiming his place as a supreme Lord over all. He doesn't just say, hey, you got to love, trust, and obey God. He says, more than anything, you got to love, trust, and obey me. And this sets Jesus apart from every other religious leader there ever was. You see, every religious leader who says, look, you got to love me and be totally committed to me more than anyone else. you got to love me more than your husband, more than your wife, more than your kids. Unless you do that, you're not even worthy to follow me. Right? Any religious leader who says that, that's typically what you would call a cult, right? If anyone ever says that to you, you should find a way to leave, hopefully before the blood offering, Right? Or they start passing around the Kool-Aid. It's usually a bad time if you stick around for that. 
Tim Keller points out in one of his books that there are people in, hi- in the history of the world who have actually made these kinds of self-focused claims. Like usually religious leaders will say, hey, look, you got to follow God. You got to follow this person. I'm a prophet for, for this deity. But there have been a few people in history, in the history of the world, who have made these self-focused claims saying, I am the way. I am the life. But you never hear of any of them. You never hear any of them except for Jesus. You know why? Because everyone laughed them away. Everyone laughed them away. Couldn't take them seriously except Jesus. And that's because his claims, his, his wild claims that he is God, that he is deserving of worship, that you should love him more than you love your family, those claims were backed up by a great life where he was serving others, where he was serving the poor, hanging out with the lepers, showing dignity to the women and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. His claims were backed by a great life, and even more so, they were backed by a resurrection. You see, if you have a great life but make no great claims, people will admire you. If you have great claims but no great life to back it up, people will laugh at you and forget about you. But when you have great claims about who you are, backed up by a radical life, And an even more radical resurrection, man, that sets Jesus apart from everyone else. Jesus is the only one that can say, you got to make your whole life about me or else you're not worthy of me. Jesus is the only one who can say that and not be an egalomaniac. Why? Because he's God. If I said that, you should laugh me away. You should call me egotistical. You should call me proud. I should probably, if I wasn't joking, get fired from my job, right? But Jesus can say that. And he can be good on those claims because he's God. He's the source of beauty. He's more satisfying than Any water you could drink, any meal you could feast upon. He was set apart from everyone else. Even other leaders in our faith, they didn't point to themselves, but they always pointed to Christ. John the Baptist, who was considered the greatest prophet to ever live, said in John 3.30, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, and I must decrease. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, said, for what we proclaim, speaking of all the other apostles and church planners at the time, he was telling this church, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. George Whitfield, the great preacher from the Great Awakening, he said, let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me. If by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. 
Jesus, on the other hand, he drew people's hearts and minds towards himself. He told people, unless they love him more than they love their own families, they didn't truly follow him. How does that settle with you? How does that settle with you? Do you love Jesus more than you love your family? Do you love Jesus more than you love your spouse? If you had to choose between him and them, who would you choose? You see, if you're a parent, are you teaching your kids that it is more important to obey Jesus than it is to obey you? We talk about this a lot in our home. Like we try to make sure that we have no arbitrary rules that are rules just because, rules for no reason. We want our rules in the home meant to be meant to teach them about God's character, the kind of people he calls us to be, to teach them to walk in the ways of the Lord. Sometimes what that looks like is I have to repent to my own children when I've fallen short. Sometimes... I drop the ball. I break promises. Sometimes I raise my voice. I lose my cool. But it's more important that my children see God as worthy of wholehearted worship than it is for me to save face before them. Are you teaching your kids that it's more important to obey Jesus than it is to obey you? Or again, if you're a parent, are you teaching your kids to love Jesus more than you? If you're married, do you hope your spouse loves Jesus more than they love you? Their loyalty, their priorities, first and foremost belong to Jesus than they do to you. Do you want that for them? Or are you stingy with that? You see, these verses here might upset you if you think that Jesus wants you to have this unloving attitude towards your family. But it's actually truer to say that people who become wholehearted followers of Jesus, who put him first in all things, they actually become better husbands and better wives, better in-laws and better children, because Jesus is teaching us to lay down our lives for others in service. And so this claim that Jesus has over our lives, this claim that he has to total lordship over our lives is actually intended to draw people and point them more to what is true, to point them more to what is actually good, what is actually beautiful, what actually matters in light of eternity. And then Jesus kind of gives us this eternal perspective. In the beginning of our passage, this is our point number three, that the judgment of God is the final divider. The judgment of God is the final divider. And we see that. Let's go back up a couple verses, looking at verse 49 and 50. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, 
and would that it were already kindled. I know the, the, the English there is kind of clunky, but he's basically saying, look, I came to cast fire on the earth and I wish it was already happening. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, these verses, these two verses are fascinating because they sort of give us this snapshot into just the inner life of Jesus here, his inner emotional turmoil. He says there's something that's going to happen in the future. He calls it a baptism of sorts that is going to cause him all kinds of distress. The Greek word used there in the original language is sunekomai. It's a word that means to be under attack, like a city that's surrounded by this massive army on multiple fronts, about to be crushed, right? That's the word that he's using here for the kind of distress that he's feeling. What is he talking about? What is it that's causing him so much distress? When he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, that metaphor is a reference to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there was a metaphor of fire meant God's judgment coming down on the earth. In Isaiah 66, verse 15, it says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is, uh, talks about, uh, he's preaching, and he talks about how on the last day, the great judge of earth will come down. He's speaking of Jesus. He says, on the last day, at the final judgment, the great judge of earth will come down like a farmer with a winnowing fork. You guys remember how winnowing forks work? It's okay, I didn't know either. I had to look it up. But... <laughs> The way a winnowing fork works is you, you put the fork in like, a, a, in like, a, a, in like a, a bale of wheat, right? And then you, you lift up uh, the winnowing fork, and then you shake it like a Polaroid picture. You shake it, and then the good stuff stays on the fork, on the winnowing fork, and then the chaff and the unusable parts start to fall down on the ground. What he's saying, what, what John is saying in, in Luke is that fire, particularly the fire of judgment, it cleanses. That's what God's judgment does. It cleanses. It cleanses the things that will last and destroys the things that won't last. So for example, we've got, we've got uh, three small children, ages six, four, and two. And uh, so if you know anything about small children, you know that we do a lot of laundry, right? Uh, <clears throat> we have to wash pillowcases. We have to wash sofa cushions. Uh, we are constantly doing laundry. Now, there's a reason that we don't wash our sofa cushions uh, on a fire pit, right? Because they'll be destroyed. They'll be destroyed. You Wash it in water. Like, you don't wash something. You can't purify something with fire, cleanse it with fire, unless it is truly strong and precious. 
That's why you cleanse precious metals in fire. Things like gold, silver, steel. You pick up this mangly piece of ore before it's been purified, and I can't tell you by looking at the piece of ore which part is valuable and which part is usable or not. Like, I have no way to tell just by looking at it. But then you put it through the fire to purify it, and all the impurities will burn away. And what's good and beautiful, what's precious, will remain. That's what the fire of God's final judgment will do. What is precious, what is good, what is beautiful, what will truly last in God's kingdom will remain. Everything else and everyone else will be consumed by fire. Now, this, if you really linger on it, is actually good news. This is good news. I know maybe at at face value, it doesn't seem like good news, but it is good news because the reality of this type of coming judgment means that there's hope for the world. It means that there's hope for ultimate truth. It means there's hope for what will really last. Some of you might remember reading about Aldous Huxley Um, The 20th century, he was a writer and philosopher. I think he passed away in like 1950-something or 1960-something. But he once wrote about how he wanted the universe to be meaningless. He wanted to be convinced that the whole universe is meaningless. Because he said, if I could convince myself of that, then I could live how I want. And that's what I want to do. He says, but then there's a price to pay. Because if the universe is meaningless then that means I'm without meaning, and there's despair. And my sense of what I believe to be right and wrong is just a total whim. There's no objective way to know if there's right or wrong. Nothing truly matters. And so it doesn't matter when the good die young, when the nice guy finishes last, when the bad guys win. None of it matters, he says. But then he says, but then if I do believe in judgment... If I do believe in judgment and that I can't live however I want, then I feel like I'd be constantly crushed by this feeling of guilt my whole life. He felt like it was a catch-22, like you lose both ways. And so he ultimately decided to live his life as a hedonist. The point he was getting at is that if there's no judgment, if there's no ultimate judgment, then there's really no true hope for the world. Why would we care about justice? Why would you care about knowing what is right and wrong and like what right and wrong even is if there's no final justice? But if there is a final judgment day, then what hope is there for each one of us? Because we know, we deep down, we know that we're broken. We know that we fall short. We know that we're sinners. We don't, if if you think about it long enough, you know that you don't even meet the standards that you press on others, that you expect them to live up to. Why is this good news? Because the good news is found in a third way. Jesus says 
in this passage, he says, look, I come. I come to bring that fire, that cleansing fire, that purifying fire. But there's a baptism that I must go through first. And he says, it causes me distress. It causes me sunekomai, distress, um, until it's done and over with. Now, what is this baptism he speaks of? It's not a baptism of water. Because when Jesus said this, he had already been baptized by water. So it's not a baptism of water, but it's actually what our baptism of water points to. Water baptism points to the death and burial of Jesus in our place and for our sins. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Jesus' last hours of his life, he was contemplating. He had this vision of just the cup of God's wrath. He pictured God's wrath as, as this cup that he would have to drink from on the cross. Not literally, figuratively. What we see in the scripture is that fire, baptism, this image of the cup, they're all the same thing. Jesus is saying, look, there is a fire. There's a fire that will consume the whole earth. It's going to purify what is good and true. It's going to destroy what is evil and rebellious. But before I can bring that fire, Jesus says, that fire has to fall on my head first. It has to consume me first. I'm going to be baptized into death, buried under the ground, truly dead. I'm going to bring that cleansing fire, but before that happens, what's causing me so much distress, what's causing my heart turmoil is that fire is going to fall on my head first. Jesus on the cross was going to fully absorb the wrath of God in our place. Historically, we've called this the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation means that Jesus didn't just like deflect God's wrath, like batter up, you know, and here comes God's wrath and boom, swung it out of the park. No, he absorbed it. His body absorbed it. He took it on himself. The fire of God's wrath. Which leads us to our fourth and final point, that this gospel, this good news, is our motivation for wholehearted worship. This gospel is our motivation for wholehearted worship, and it's that worship that separates us from the world so that we can point the world to what's true, good, and beautiful. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says, Jesus did not come to earth the first time to bring justice, but rather to bear it. He came not with a sword in his hands, but with nails through his hands. Christian teaching for centuries has been this, that Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve, so that someday he can return to earth to end evil without destroying us all. That's good news. 
You want motivation to follow Jesus with all your heart? That's it. That's it. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. God could have been just a, a just God, a fair God, a good God to just come at the end of all time and destroy us all. But because he's more than just a just, good, and fair God and righteous God, he's also a God who is loving, merciful, gracious, humble, not against us, but for us. Because he's that kind of God. Jesus came the first time to absorb that fire so that someday when he comes back to cleanse the world of all evil and all rebellion, to make the world the good life that we all truly long for deep inside, getting rid of all that is wrong and wicked and rebellious, that he would do that without destroying us all. Look at verse 50 again in Luke 12. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is the distress? It's the distress that Jesus felt knowing what he would have to do in our place, knowing what he would have to do for us. It's not because he didn't want to do it for us, but it's because he knew the pain and suffering that he would have to endure in order to come after us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that prayer we mentioned just a minute ago, God the Father said to Jesus while Jesus was praying, he, God said, my son, here is the cup. Here is the cup of my wrath. I want you to smell it. I want you to see it. And if you drink it, you will be utterly destroyed. The God-man will taste death. He says, you will be utterly destroyed, but if you don't, they, the sinners that I've elected for you, they will perish. Jonathan Edwards says, in that moment, the Father wanted us to see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience so that his love for us will be put on display even more. Man, I want you to let your mind linger on that. Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience under the fire of God's wrath against our sin. I think some of us, we tend to linger on how hard it is to follow Jesus. We tend to linger on what a burden it is. But that just means you're not grasping the beauty of who Jesus is. 
Linger on the gospel. Linger on what he's done for you. You will never give up more for him than he gave up for you. You will never suffer more for him than he has suffered for you. You will never be required to go after him more than what, how he has gone after you. There's a modern hymn that was written in the last decade that we sing here sometimes. I love it so much. Uh, like one of my favorite uh, tattoos that I have actually has a, a quote from this hymn. It's a hymn called, All I Have is Christ. And in one of the verses, it says, As I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you, Jesus, looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. You see, what, what truly divides those who belong to Jesus and those who don't are those who know that all that they have and all that they know is grace and those who have yet to know. And my prayer for us is that as a church family, we would be known as people of grace, people who know grace, people who've been transformed by grace, who live differently because of grace, and people who want to make that grace known to the ends of the earth. There's a few practical things, practical steps and thoughts that I want you to walk away with in light of our text. One is maybe ask yourself, have I owned Jesus in all my relationships? What I mean by that is, are you unashamed of your relationship with Jesus in all your relationships? Do you hide Jesus from some relationships? Are you open? Are you honest? Do you live with integrity as a Jesus follower in all your relationships? In your home? In your neighborhood? Among those who you consider different than you? Among those who you might even consider your enemies? Do you own your relationship with Jesus when you're around others? Next, do you follow Jesus faithfully in the everyday stuff of life? Does your life display the fact that you live differently, that you think differently, that you have a different source of truth, that you're satisfied in a deeper level by a different sort of goodness, that you find beauty in the things of God and not in the things of this world? Are you following Jesus faithfully in the everyday stuff of life? 
I remember early on when we planted King's Cross, uh, there was this uh, woman who was like newer in her faith, just recently got baptized. She was the only Christian on her side of the family. And she found herself like at, at odds uh, with her family. Because she, she would say, you know, like, my family, they love to do things on Sundays. And, like, I just found myself saying, uh, telling to them, like, no, like, I'm sorry, like, we can't do that because, like, we, we, we want to go, like, we want to go to church. And they're like, oh, we'll just, like, miss this one Sunday. And she's like, well, like, this is a priority for that. And they just kind of, like, laughed at her and kind of made, made fun of her because they didn't get it. She didn't grow up in a Christian home. They didn't understand that. And she's like, you know what, though? She's like, they make me feel so stupid when they say that. But, like, I don't even care because I want them to know that this is important to me. I want them to know that I value this. Months later, we got invited to a party, and there was some of her extended family there. And one of her family members comes up to me and starts asking, like, knowing that, that I'm her pastor, and starts asking me questions about Jesus. Because she says, look, I, I see the difference that, that Jesus has made in my family member's life. And she's like, I've got to be honest, there's some of it that, like, is, that just like, bugged me and annoyed me at first. But more time has gone on. She's like, I feel myself like, drawn to that. She's like, there's something beautiful about it. She had all kinds of questions, you know, like, how do we know this is true? And like, well, where do we get the Bible from? And stuff. It was a really, like, wonderful conversation. We ended up, like, talking for a really long, long time. But are you following Jesus faithfully in the everyday stuff of life? And I think it's worth asking, too, number three, <laughs> am I being needlessly divisive? Am I being needlessly divisive? Or is it just my wholehearted worship that divides me from others? Because look, some of us like to divide ourselves from other out of a sense of superiority rather than a sense, uh, uh, rather than a place of faithfulness. You know what I mean? To where your posture is, hey, it's us versus them. I'm right, they're wrong. They need to get to where I'm at and like, they're stupid. They're wrong. Like, I've got my stuff together. But if you remember our passage from Matthew 7 last week, that kind of mentality, that kind of posture has no place in the Christian's heart. Some of us are divisive because we like to be uh, what theologians call jerks. <laughs> but some of us, our lives just divide out of necessity because we are wholeheartedly sold out for the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We get our sense of truth from a different place. We're satisfied by goodness that only comes from him. And we seek to gaze at a beauty that can only be found in him. Is that what divides you? But for all of us, may we live 
for the glory of God, for the good of others, in the everyday stuff of life, in a way that compels people to want to know what we know, to want to have what we have. And yes, by doing that, we're going to repel some, but we're also going to attract others. And may we be faithful to point them to Christ who has absorbed God's wrath on their behalf so that we might have true and lasting life in Him. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.